Proverbs 3 this morning. It's where we're going to be this morning. Thank you, Caden, for reading that. It was a good introduction to where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I failed to mention earlier, but at the 1130 portion today, after the service is concluded, uh, Pastor going to give what we're calling, I guess, a, a pastoral update of all the things going on this summer. And not just what we're doing, but probably more importantly, the why behind those things. Uh, it's one thing just to do stuff for the sake of doing stuff, but to actually have a why behind what we're doing, um, he will give more of that, the 1130 portion. So stick around for that. That will be helpful to understand what the summer's going to look like and why. With our series in Galatians being done, uh, we're not going to turn to the book of Proverbs for the summertime at least. And we're going to be bouncing all over the book of Proverbs, just taking excerpts from here and there. We won't really go in order like we usually go through a book. But we'll be just taking excerpts here and there. And today is no different. I'm going to start in chapter 3 instead of chapter 1. Uh, next week, Pastor will go to chapter 1. He'll lay more foundation for wisdom, uh, for what the fear of the Lord is, for how those two are inseparably connected. But today we're going to be in Proverbs 3. And we thought Proverbs 3 would be um, immensely appropriate today, being that it is Promotion Sunday. So now that school is done, all the children especially move on to their next Sunday school classes. I know we've got about nine teens moving up. Uh, next, really on Wednesday, they'll be moving up to the youth group. And there's uh, primaries as well, moving up in four and fives. And uh, while we're on the topic, is anybody moving up from the Kent Voucher Memorial up into Allen's class this year? <laughs> and, <laughs> it's, it's not my business, never mind, I shouldn't ask that. But anyways, uh, that's why we chose Proverbs 3. Usually when you get to Proverbs 3, it's kind of that challenge of what are you doing next? What are those next steps in life that you need to take? And how are you going to get there? Are you going to do... Uh, things and make decisions based on your own intellect or on your own wisdom? Are you going to place your trust and your confidence in yourself? Or are you going to turn to God and put your trust and your confidence in Him, in the only wise God, in the only one who is able to direct your paths? Are you going to choose to acknowledge Him in all of your ways? And truth be told, we usually uh, preach or teach that lesson to young people, now especially high schoolers or those graduating college, and we challenge them with what do your next steps look like? What are you going to do moving forward? But in all reality, we all need that same exact challenge. Uh, whether it's me looking for my next steps in the Navy, my next career steps, or whether you're uh, Briley or John Jr. or Leah moving up into youth group, we all need that same wisdom from God. For those of you the past few years who have gotten together all of your uh, retirement stuff and you think you finally have a plan in place and you're about to hit that button and retire, from you all the way down to the newlywed couple who is looking at what should our life in Christ look like as a married couple, it's the same wisdom involved. Uh, this, this message is, a, is immensely appropriate for all of us. And God does not limit his wisdom to certain circumstances, or to certain people, or to certain age groups. In fact, the Bible says quite the opposite. In James 1.5, James says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men freely, abundantly, without reproach, and it will be given him. I'm seeing kids step out. If you're going to the children's program, are they meeting this morning? Okay, you're still meeting, so you want to dismiss yourselves for that. I apologize. But God gives his wisdom freely to anybody who asks. What an amazing promise. What an amazing challenge to us who so often forget that it is our God who gives that wisdom and who's looking to give it to us freely, generously, above and beyond all that we could ask or think. Something else I want to point out as well in the book of Proverbs 
is Proverbs were written, written to believers. This is God's wisdom for believers to live by. And yet in a lot of the Proverbs, we see things that even the world, even the ungodly, if they paid attention to, their lives would be a whole lot better. Uh, next month, I'll be in Proverbs 25, as we just pinball all over the place. And uh, one of the Proverbs there in Proverbs 25 is on the screen. Do not hastily bring into court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Anybody can live by that proverb. In other words, if you're going to take someone to court, you better make sure that what you perceived or what you thought you saw was absolutely correct. You have all your ducks in a row. You have all your evidences laid out. Uh, why? Because in the end, if you do not, what's the defendant going to do? He's going to poke holes in all of your arguments, and you're going to shame yourself in front of the court. Uh, that's a nice way of saying you're going to look like an idiot in front of everybody if you jump to hasty conclusions. Okay, that's a proverb anybody can live by. And yet when we come to Proverbs 3, this proverb is specifically for believers. There is no wisdom from God outside of relationship with Christ. And we're going to see what he means by that in, in a few verses here. Uh, but Proverbs 3 is a little different in that only the wisdom contained therein is for only believers. If you see the screen behind me, you'll see my main points. All right, I'm going to give them to you all up front today so you see exactly where we're going uh, with the sermon. But what you'll notice is at the beginning of each of those, I give the awesome truth of what God intends for us. God will heal in that first point. That sounds pretty amazing. That sounds really good. But it comes at a price. What's the price? It requires fearing God. Look at the second one. God will direct, I'm sorry, God honors with plenty. God honors with abundance. How do we get there? You have to honor God first. Okay, look at the third one. God will direct your paths. Boy, does that sure sound enticing in the world we live in. But what's required first? Acknowledging God as leader, as our standard for life, as the only one who is able to direct our paths. And how quick we are to abandon the love and the power and the healing that only God can provide us. He can exchange that power with us for our self-reliance. He can take away everything that we do in our own strength and provide the absolute power that we need. This morning, as we, as we work our way through a few verses in Proverbs 3, uh, we're going to begin in verse 7, where Solomon gives this warning, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, I confess this morning that we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this concept, the fear of the Lord. Like I said, next week, Pastor's going to really get in, in depth with that. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to find our wisdom in Him? Uh, so, so make a mental note of that, and we'll return to that next week, um, more as a theme next week. Uh, but for right now, I've chosen to focus on this morning the antithesis of fearing the Lord. And that's what Proverbs calls being wise in your own eyes. Now, if you did a comprehensive study on the word eyes or eye in the Bible, you would find some very interesting things, um, especially as it relates to a contrast between the eyes of the Lord or the eyes of God and the eyes of man. Anytime you see the eyes of the Lord or the eyes of God, there is this strange emphasis on God's power, his wisdom, his attributes. It's all about the perfections of God. When we see the eyes of man, it's completely the opposite, especially in the poetry, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, like where we are this morning. It's almost entirely on man's 
uh, lack of power, our finiteness, uh, our eyes deceive us in so many ways. Our perceptions can be so far from reality. What did God tell Samuel when he went to anoint David as king? He said, disregard the outward appearance. When you see David, you're not going to be impressed. You're not going to see his stature and be like, wow, this is for sure the next king of uh, Israel. Rather, he says, man will look on the outward appearance because man in his finiteness only sees the outward. It's the infinite, all-powerful eyes of God that see to where it really matters, the heart. Our ability to determine right and wrong, no less to choose between right and wrong, will come up far too short without the wisdom of God. So with this in mind, Solomon warns, do not be wise in your own eyes. Rather, you need to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then look how verse 8 follows up with the warning not to rely on self-wisdom and the charge he gives to fear the Lord. He says, when you fear the Lord and depart from evil, the result is healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And we see here a general principle of God that we see in several other places throughout the Bible. And that principle is simply this. Those who turn from their sinful ways and trust in the Lord and delight in his leading and delight in his word, they will reap the benefits of that kind of a life. It's a general Bible principle. And we see this principle in Exodus 15. Remember the nation of Israel, they go, uh, they're, they're coming out of Egypt, they're progressing towards Mount Sinai, and they come to a place that they later name Mara. And what's notable about Mara is the title itself means bitterness. The water there was bitter. And so what God does is he tells Moses, take this log, throw it in the water, and the waters will lose their bitterness, they'll become sweet, and the people drank and they were satisfied. And that's a great story. We see the hand of God strongly at work, but that's not where the story ends. Moses records that God specifically tested them there to make a point. This was all planned by God. He does so. Look what it says in uh, verse 25. There at Marah, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them specifically, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, there's the eyes of the Lord again, by the way, and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And so Solomon amplifies this principle, this characteristic of God in Proverbs 3, where he writes to his son that, good with, that, that health and refreshment are the normal consequences of living a life that seeks wisdom from God. And the converse is just as true. Those who seek self and pleasure and evil ways of godlessness will normally tend towards sickness and decay. Are there any drunks of which you know of that you would say their life is defined as being one of good health? Probably not. Any drug abusers in your life you know of who you would define as experiencing a life of refreshment? Probably not. A lot of people these days find wisdom and advice in glass bottles. Uh, this particular glass bottle I noticed in a store here in town a few days ago. And as I looked at the bottle, and I looked at the price of what's beneath the bottle, my question was, who would pay $1,100 for three hours of bad advice and a hangover? And that price tag might be wrong, I don't know. But either way, um, in reality, I can think of people who would pay that for three hours of horrible advice and a hangover. 
You know what? It was right by the cash register, actually. <laughs> but that's the epitome of self-wisdom. That's the epitome of self-wisdom, and it leads to decay. Solomon says, let me offer you healing and refreshment. And it's really simple. Choose the Lord and forsake the evil. And then for the next two verses, Solomon is going to pinch a nerve that uh, pretty much every human has. And he's going to address money and uh, the ever-awkward topic for a pastor to preach, and that's the topic of giving. And uh, yet Solomon ad addresses it here. Uh, let me open up a question here to the audience this morning. I'm going to ask for some interaction here. Um, overarchingly, what are the four main things that we can use money for? What's the first one? What's, what's the easy and fun one? What can we use money for? Spending, all right? Just buying things. I'm pretty sure we all like to spend. Tiffany might be the exception. She hates shopping, especially for clothes. But for most of us, spending's pretty fun. We all enjoy spending. What's the opposite of spending? Saving, just putting money away in, in a shoebox, in an account, uh, low risk, low reward. Uh, what is like saving, but there is risk and reward? Investing, all right? Investing, putting money where it has the opportunity to grow or extremely diminished, like the past few months, a lot of our accounts are diminishing, uh, but that's investing. And a fourth one is just giving or donating or some kind of charitable contribution. Really, these are the four things that we use uh, money for. And in verse 9, Solomon addresses the fourth one, the giving. And really the Bible as a whole addresses all four of these uh, in one place or another, but he addresses giving by saying, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, there are two things related to money and giving I want to point out this morning. The first is simply what Solomon says. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth. We talk a lot about honoring God with our speech, uh, with our actions, with our thoughts, with our interactions with one another, but how often do we think about honoring God with our wealth? How often do we think about, I have been given so much from God, how can I use this to glorify God with it? How can I use it to honor God? I'll tell you someone who is extremely interested in how believers think about money, and that was Jesus. In fact, the time he spent teaching his disciples, his followers, and anybody who would listen about money and its pitfalls seems almost absurd the amount of time he spends on it. And yet when we look at, even now, 21st century materialistic America, how applicable it is. Jesus warns about the presumption of wealth. He warns about reliance on riches. He says that it is nearly impossible for a rich man to become a believer because of where his confidence is really found, in his wealth. Paul says it to, Paul says it to Timothy in 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And the list goes on. And here's my point. God on one hand and the world on the other view money completely differently. Let me give you an illustration. When I was in high school, I must have seen some kind of commercial or advertisement for a financial conference that was going to be aired on TV a few weeks later. And so the day came, I went to the TV, I turned to the right channel, and I started watching this financial seminar. I don't know why I cared at 15 years old. But I turned it on, and once the lady got up and she introduced herself and introduced the topic, the first question she asked was, why do we save money? 
Why do we invest? Why do we try to accumulate as much wealth as possible? And the conclusion she came to was we build money, we build wealth simply for security. And the more I thought about that as a young kid, the more I recognized I fully agree with her. That is why we save and we earn and we try to accumulate as much wealth as possible, at least for myself. It's for security. If I had millions of dollars, I would have the security of a brand new home where things just don't break as quickly. I would have the security that when my car broke down, I could replace the parts immediately or just buy a new car outright. I would have the security of a very healthy standard of living. I would have the security of being able to go to college, any college I wanted. I would have the security of a retirement, probably early, and a very robust retirement. So from a secular position, yeah, I fully agree. Probably the main reason why people accumulate wealth is for that kind of security. And yet God views wealth as a stewardship. Not as security, but as a stewardship of what he's already given to us. His view is completely different. It's a tool that we can use for honoring the Lord. In Mark 10, Jesus tells his disciples how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit eternal life, to inherit the kingdom of God. Proverbs 11:28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Back to 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He does not outlaw wealth. He doesn't say give everything away. But he says there's, there's an extreme uh, level of um, oh, accountability that, you, that comes with that money. There are things you need to be doing with that money. They are to do good. If you are rich, you are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future. So we see an investment principle here as well. So that they may take hold of that which truly is life. In other words, Paul is saying that generosity and a readiness to share are not uses of money that are found solely in that giving or that charity column there's also a measure of investment that's also in place here. That's exactly what Solomon is saying in Proverbs 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This principle really is quite simple. When you honor the Lord with your wealth, he will abundantly provide for every need above and beyond. For more on that, go to Matthew 6, an incredible passage on trusting God with what you have, even as little as it may be. We need to move on this morning, but let me quickly draw your attention to that little word, first fruits, uh, in, in Proverbs 9 and 10, or Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Part of honoring God with our giving is giving him what is best. It is giving back what is already his in obedience and faith. I think too often we focus on the actual act of giving or the amount we give, like, oh, I gave my 10% this month, I'm good until next month. I've already given one, so when next month comes around, I'll give again. But I would argue that the spirit of giving is far more important than any amount given or the regularity of which you give. 
In fact, Jesus says the same thing in Mark chapter 12. And here in, in, in Proverbs 3, Solomon says to give of your first fruits, giving to God the first and the best. Really giving where it hurts, giving where it requires faith. Some of us are living in poverty of spirit because we are stingy with God. Some of us are living in poverty of spirit because instead of giving our first fruits in faith, we wait until we have met all of our needs and all of our wants, and then we give to God whatever scraps are left. Let me encourage you to evaluate your heart of giving and your generosity. And here's why I say that. As I read the Bible, I can't help but come to any other conclusion but that when I am stingy with the wealth that God has given to me to steward, it boils down to a problem with my faith in and my obedience to God. Basically, I have a problem with my financial security, the secular view of money, and my confidence being in something material rather than in God. The Bible calls that idolatry, by the way. And if that is something that you struggle with, as I'm sure most of us do, I'm going to encourage you with verses 5 and 6, because that gives us the answer of how we deal with our stinginess, uh, with our idolatry of money. Solomon says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Just like in verses 7 and 8 that talk about health, and verses 9 and 10 that talk about stewarding and having plenty. So verses 5 and 6 reveal that God will guide. He will make straight our paths in life. But he also predicates God's guidance on a few things. Trusting God with all of our hearts. Not relying upon our own flawed and finite understanding. And also acknowledging God in every single step that we take. In contrast, prosperity theology, also known as the prosperity gospel movement, would teach us that God desires, it's his will, that we all be healthy and we all be wealthy. And that to achieve that premier health and substantial wealth requires a lot of faith and generosity and giving and other works, etc. And the verses that the prosperity gospel movement would use to project that are the same verses we are studying this morning. But there are several flaws with that kind of theology. And the first, and I wrote down three here, uh, just the first three I thought of, there's probably even more. But the first is that it places the believer in the driver's seat instead of God. It says that you can control your health and your wealth levels through your own works, and God will be this genie in the bottle who will give you whatever you have earned, as if we could ever earn anything. Number two, prosperity gospel can very quickly and easily turn the believer into a materialist by making their life's goal the pursuit of riches and health as opposed to trusting in God with all your heart, respecting and honoring God. And thirdly, it dislodges the glory of God as the highest pursuit of man by making the glory of God a means to a selfish end. You see, God's desires are a little bit different. God's desires are to trust in him and for self-reliance to be eradicated from our lives. God's desire is acknowledging him in all of our ways and allowing him to guide us on life's path. God's desire is the fear and the wisdom of God and not self-produced wisdom. God's desire is that we honor him in faith and with our first and our best. Verse 9. Then, 
And only then could we ever expect to see any measure of benefit from God. And even then, not as a reward or as some grace that we earned or merited, but as a natural blessing upon a life that is wholly dedicated to following God. So how do we get to the place where the promises of God's word are what define our lives? What does it look like to trust God with my whole heart and acknowledge him in all of my ways? How do I even get there? Well, number one, it looks like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that is the answer to every problem that we have. It is the answer to every sin, to every shortcoming that we have. It is the answer to how we deal with sins committed against us and to the flurry of wrongs that plague us and mass shootings and unjust wars and racism and racially driven crimes. And the list goes on and on and on. The answer is Jesus and a personal relationship with him. If that is something that you do not have but desire, please don't leave here today without talking to me or somebody else. We all need that. We all desperately need a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the beginning of wisdom. For those of us who are believers and are pursuing a relationship with Christ, let me throw out two more ways that we can be trusting God or learning to trust God and acknowledge him in all of our ways. Number two, read the Bible. And I realize pretty much every sermon I preach, that's one of my application points, is read more Bible. It's not my attempt of being uh, obnoxious or cute. It's my way of trying to get across. Every answer for life is found in God's word. Do you want to acknowledge God in all of your ways? Then find out what he expects. It's in his word. Do you want to truly trust in the Lord with all of your hearts? Then read account after account after account of how God has kept his promises and his covenants through generations, through thousands of years of human history. He'll do that for you. Do you want to know how to fear the Lord? Then study his attributes. Know what God is all about. Do you want to learn how to honor the Lord with your wealth and not with your scraps? You need to understand God's perspective on money and stewardship. That's all found in the Word of God, Proverbs, the Gospels. All these answers are available to you. Read the Bible exhaustively. And as you find verses that help you understand who God is, let me encourage you to memorize them. In one of his books, Robert Morgan says this, when you take the verses God gives you in these critical moments of life, when you read them so often you know them by heart, when you memorize them without even being aware you have done so, then you've implanted the pure and unadulterated truth of God into the deepest furrows of your brain. It's like a chip of unsaleable hope that starts irradiating its influence in waves, bathing your conscience and subconscious thoughts with its therapeutic influence. The Bible calls this being transformed by the renewing of your minds. You might recognize that as Romans 12 too, where he got that last phrase. And number three, adapt God's perspective. Trusting the Lord and acknowledging him in all of our ways means that we adapt God's perspective in life situations, all of them. That is, when I view life situations through the lens of my finiteness, I'm going to miss 99%, at least 99% of what God is doing in my life or in somebody else's life 
or just in his grand scheme uh, for life. I'm going to miss that. But when I see things and look at things through God's perspective, when I filter my life and my life circumstances through the objective truth of God's word and through the lens of God's faithful and loving promises, that's when life begins to make sense. That's where I gain hope. I must rely upon the promises of God's word. Promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can boldly say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Promises like, and you have suffered a little while, after which you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Promises like, so we do not lose hearts. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, I know it rarely seems light and momentary going through it, but this light and momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. We have these and so many other great and precious promises of God. Claiming these promises and living in a manner that demonstrates our full acknowledgement of God through the promises of his word is how we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. It is how we acknowledge God in all of our ways. And when this becomes the testimony of your beliefs demonstrated in your actions, that is when God is able to make straight your paths, to guide your steps. For the one who trusts in God and who fears him, the one who honors him in everything he does, it is that blessed person who understands that the fullness and the fullest life is found in the paths that lead towards God, not in the paths that lead away from God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Please use it in mighty ways. In Jesus' name, amen.